Good morning. My name is Katie Peters, and I'm part of our teaching team here. And through our practice series, we're going to hear the scriptures read aloud at the beginning of each message. We'll hear an Old Testament passage, a New Testament, and a gospel reading. Hi, my name is Carly Barron, and I'm gonna, the Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 32, verses 45 through 52. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, Go up into the Abarim range to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There, on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Shalom. My name is Jim Zingelman. The New Testament reading is from Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes to whom, of him to whom we must give account. Shalom. Hi, my name is Lakindria Moore. Please stand for the gospel reading. I will be reading from Matthew 17, 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elisha, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> Thank you. They did a great job, didn't they? <clears throat> the last words that somebody speaks are often memorable. We want to remember them. Words like, I'll be back. Or what about these? Last words. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Very passionate Trekkies in the room. <laughs> what about these words? It is finished. The fifth book of the Bible is called Deuteronomy. That word, Deuteronomy, means these are the words. It is the last words of Moses. That's the passage that Carly read for us. That moment where Moses, he's standing in front of all these basically young people because their parents have died in the wilderness because they failed to heed the words of God. They were rebellious, stubborn, didn't listen. So he's the oldest person they've ever seen. Like by double their parents' age, he has this long beard, he has cataracts in his eyes, and his attendants have prepared shouters so he's going to say the words, and they're going to keep shouting them and shouting them so that everybody can hear what he has to say. And what is he going to say to them? He remembers the moment when they were thirsty and complaining, and God told him to speak to the rock, and he was so frustrated with the people that instead of speaking to it, he struck it with his staff. And it was that moment where he failed to uphold God's holiness in front of the Israelites that he is going to look on the promised land and he's not going to enter it himself. And so he speaks to them. And he says, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. How can these words be our life? What kind of book is this? It's the very nature of the Bible, says Thomas Merton, to affront, perplex, astonish the human mind. Hence, the reader who opens the Bible must be prepared for disorientation, confusion, incomprehension, perhaps even outrage. Today, I want to look at some of our objections to why we don't open this book. They may be conscious objections or subconscious. We're going to challenge some of those, and then I'd love to explore and look at some practical ways that you and I could become people who love this book. So firstly, some of our objections. One of them, I think, is that we think the Bible, or parts of it, are too difficult to understand. R.C. Sproul, Bible scholar, he says, though there are parts that are difficult to understand in the Bible, its basic message is quite clear. Martin Luther, Protestant reformer, he said, the parts that seem obscure or difficult to understand in the scriptures are actually explained more simply elsewhere. There's language, there's cultural barriers that we need to contend with, right? Things like Deuteronomy 14 verse 8 that says, don't touch a dead pig's carcass. I mean, there goes football. What, what do we do with that? Eugene Nida was a 
uh, Bible translator, over 80 different countries across four decades, and he said this. He said, if you were to compare the culture of the Bible to every other culture that exists in the world today, you would find that the, the biblical culture is actually surprisingly closer to most of them, except for the technocentric, individualistic cultures of the West. It's actually the Western culture that is the aberrant one. It is the, it is the odd one in the world. We're the ones who've moved. So we have a little bit of trekking to understand some of the cultural aspects of the word here. Some parts of the Bible may be difficult or confusing, but it's meant to challenge our intelligence, not insult us. Invite us with curiosity to explore. Our problem is that we are prideful, dishonest, and lazy. You're welcome. <laughs> Study takes work, and just because it is the Bible does not mean that it's not work. None of us is immune. We must struggle our whole pilgrimage to pursue the God of the Word and the Word Himself. It's not too difficult to understand. Secondly, maybe we object to the Bible because of the violence that's in it. I hope we then also similarly object to the violence as entertainment that we watch on Netflix. Or maybe we don't read that CNN article and instead pray for that family or those people because it's too violent. This is confronting, the Bible is confronting it shows us life as we find it, history of humanity across 1,500 years of human development, concubines, polygamy, infant sacrifice, slavery, tribal warfare. These are devastating and tragic practices in the ancient Near East. And despite that, God loved the people of the ancient world. They were sinners just like us. And if he was going to speak to them, he needed to speak with them in events and in vocabulary that they would understand. The Bible is a story from which nothing real is excluded. It's real people in real circumstances, and real life is often very disturbing. I was reading the last words of David recently in 1 Kings chapter 2, just in my normal Bible reading. So I'm reading, and, and he has this moment where he's charging his son Solomon. He's saying, you know, he's on his deathbed. He's saying, hey, Solomon, whatever you do, listen to God's words. These are your life. If you, if you will obey and heed this, it will go well for you. If you don't, it's not going to be good. So he has this honorable charge. And then the very last words that David speaks, he says, you remember Joab? how he betrayed me, and remember Benaziah, he cursed me. Look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, Solomon. You're, you're a smart man, but bring their gray heads down to the grave in blood. I'm not kidding. Those are the last words of David. I sat there. I read this a couple of weeks ago. I was like, what? It was this moment just in my normal Bible reading where I thought, are you kidding me? 
When I was younger, I might have read those words and thought, okay, there must be a reason. This is the Bible. This is, after all, you know, King David. But I thought, this is not the way of Jesus. I don't want those to be my last words. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that we're meant to look for moral examples on every page. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's meant to be repeated. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that God is affirming that behavior or those choices. It is, it is the eternal, powerful word of God and a whole list of descriptive choices that humanity and all our frailty we made. It can be both those things at the same time. Precisely because God chose to speak within real history, you and I can have confidence that these same words will speak in our own real history. What if our objection might be, number three, that it's boring? It's like, man. I like how Thomas Merton says, he says, do I have to honestly claim that I get more spontaneously involved in the Bible than I do TV commercials? The Bible, it's an error if we come to it and we think we're just going to have this overwhelming experience every time. The surface of the Bible may not even be interesting at times. And yet, when one does finally get into it, in one way or another, he finds that he is no longer questioning the book, but being questioned by it. Karl Barth, he says this, he says, when you come to the Bible and you ask the question, what kind of book is this? You find that you're also implicitly being asked, who is this that reads it? That Hebrews 4 passage that Jim read for us, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Divides. How is that possible? How is this? How is God's written word sharper than a two-edged sword? Let me ask this. Can a brain surgeon's scalpel penetrate thought? What about a heart surgeon? Does a heart surgeon have a tool that's sharp enough to open up desire? No, but the word of God goes here, into the deepest parts of us, the inmost parts of ourselves, exposing our thoughts and desires. My seven-year-old son came to me, and I was encouraging him in his scripture reading, and I said, listen to God when you read. Listen, see what he might talk with you about. And he said, he covered his ears, and he was like, ah, I wish I could hear. I can't hear God speaking to me. Uh, and I said, honey, I know. Because that's not exactly how we hear him speak. It usually comes as a thought. And we sort of wonder, if, it's, if you're anything like me, you wonder, was that my thought or was that God's thoughts? Because his thoughts start to, his words, these are his thoughts through his words. They start to get into our thoughts. And then they start to reshape them. Thoughts like, I used to think that if I didn't make certain choices, I might miss out on God's good plan in my life. I don't think that anymore. I used to think that if I made choices, his love for me might be affected. I don't think that anymore. I used to think 
that because I didn't look like this particular person or this particular image I'd seen on an advertisement, I wasn't as beautiful. I don't think that anymore. His thoughts have started to get into my thoughts as I read the scripture, and they've started to displace them over time. And so I have been transformed, like Romans 12, 1 to 3 says, renewed, transformed by the renewing of my thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and if we don't know them, we can't be transformed by them. We've got to open it regularly and read all the way through and allow his thoughts to replace and heal and change ours. As Augustine says, God is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. I was reading the scripture recently, and I was in John chapter 6, and I had been, I had been just, like, just a bit rude and snarky to my husband. I know that's hard to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. <laughs> I can't believe that. But I came to the scripture, and I was grieved about it. And I read how Jesus' words, he said, you know, you come to the Father, people come to the Father because the Father draws them. And he says, and anyone who comes to me, I will never turn away. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge, wild moment, but it was just this breath. I was like, thank you. Thank you for not turning me away, even when I've been rude and, had, and been ugly. Every time I read the scripture, this isn't boring. There's like a breath, there's a word, something that comes up in a conversation with someone or his thoughts get into my thoughts. Maybe we object to reading the Bible because we think it's just a book that's a, re a religious book just for Christian people. Now, I have a friend who was not a Jesus follower and she was considering faith in Jesus. And she said to me, isn't it sad that Jesus died? And I said, well, yeah, but he resurrected. She said, well, okay, but isn't it still sad that he died? And I thought, wow, I'd gotten so used to the story. Let's not think as Jesus followers in the room that we know the Bible just because we're used to the story and we, we aren't astonished by it. In 1962, Pope John Twenty-third, he invited this group of non-Catholic artists to get together to talk about the arts. And one of them was Pier Paolo Pasolini, an Italian filmmaker, atheist. He gets to Assisi, and Pasolini, there's so much traffic, there's so much congestion because the Pope is in this small town that he's confined to his hotel room. And he finds the Gideon's Bible that's in his drawer. And he reads Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all the way through. He's so struck by the gospel that he, in 1964, he has produced the film called The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Gets all kinds of awards. It's critically acclaimed as one of the greatest films about Jesus Christ ever. And it's just ordinary people. He actually didn't have a lot of actors in it. It's just these ordinary people. You watch it and there's all this silence. And you're, it's, it looks like life as you might find it in the gospel. And he, the dialogue is just the gospel of Matthew because he said, I couldn't write a script that would reach the heights of the poetry that is in this text. He says, I'm a non-believer, but I have a nostalgia for belief. 
Any serious reading of the Bible, it does something to the person who reads it. The Bible, it's, it's anybody, everybody's book. And the person who's not a believer could prove themselves just as capable as someone who's a follower of Jesus to find in it things that a believer, we would do well to consider. So if we're willing to challenge some of the, those objections, I'd love to encourage us now about how we might become people who love it. Reading the scripture leads to loving its author. The first thing we need to do when we come to the scripture is connect with the author. My kids through the summer, when we would be just through the day, if they wanted to get on a screen, I said, you needed to do your jobs, you know, like your normal chore jobs. And I included, you need to read the scripture. You can judge me if you want for that. But I, I started to notice that the kids would try to get through the scripture quickly so that they could just watch something. And I, um, I said, okay, we're going to introduce a new practice. You need to pray Write down a prayer in your journal as a response to something you read. And I started to open up these conversations. I started to challenge them, and now it's a phrase that I use in the house. You need to connect with the author. This isn't just to get through. Moses in Exodus chapter 4, he encounters God the very first time in a fire. And it's this voice, and he's trembling, he's stuttering, he's... And then there's this journey where he encounters God face to face like a friend. He bargains with him. He disagrees. He, he argues. Sometimes he seems to lose. Sometimes he wins God over. But he realizes, as Philip Yancey writes, he realizes that even though God, he grew up in a society of sun worshipers, Moses, in Egypt, and animal gods, he realizes that God is a person. One of the basic truths put forward in the Bible as a whole, is not merely that God is always right and man is always wrong, but that God and man can face each other in an authentic dialogue. One which implies true reciprocity between persons, each of whom fully respects the other's rights and freedom. When we connect with the author, we can have an authentic dialogue. We open this book, ask, open the book and open our hearts to experience and hear him speaking to us. All too often in my journey of reading the scripture, there have been times when I've seen it a little bit like my um, manual for my new stove. You know, you get a new appliance and, and you, read the, you read the manual because you want to know how it works. And we read it in the beginning, but then as long as everything's functioning okay, we don't, we don't do anything with it. Until there's an error message. And then it's like, what does D80 mean? Where is that? I don't even. Or sometimes I've seen the Bible like a 911 call. You know, we have a 911 in our business. We have a 911 in our relationship, our marriages, or a lack of relationship. We have a 911 when we don't know what major to choose. We have a 911 just in the circumstances, our health, maybe a loss. So we're like, 911, the Bible, I need, hang on. But the problem is, Seeing the Bible that way is missing out on so much in connecting with the author because no one on Saturday afternoon takes out a stove manual to read. <laughs> Nobody does that. You don't read a manual over and over and over again. And you don't call 911 just to have a chat. 
When we see the Bible like this, we miss out on connecting with the author. Sometimes I've seen the Bible like my toothbrush. It's like... You know, that habit that I do each day, but I get an electric one so that I can do it faster. I don't need to brush for the whole two minutes because that's basically like 15 seconds, you know. So we read the Bible, we get, we're in a habit, and even though there's benefit to brushing our teeth, even if it's for 15 seconds, we're missing out on so much connecting with the author. No one has a relationship with their toothbrush. Nobody is going to brush their teeth for an hour, but if you and I will read, we start to discover, hang on a second, I've read that place before. Where is that back here? I saw that. What? I didn't even know that was in there. I've seen the Bible at times like my iPhone agreement. You know, where you get it and you're just like, genealogy, it's like, scroll, scroll, just get to the bottom, click, I agree, I agree. But we don't even really know what we're agreeing to. I was reading in the scripture recently, and I read again in 2 Samuel the story of King David, where he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, because that's usually when we sin. And he sees a naked woman, and he wants her. So he takes her. She gets pregnant. He has his husband killed to cover up his sin. He tries to hide it. Then, a few chapters later, his, the husband that he has murdered is Uriah the Hittite. Then, a few chapters later, in chapter 23 I was reading, and David lists all of his mighty men. There's 33 of them. Men that, he, you know, were honorable, integrous, people who were the most valiant. And the very last name on the list is Uriah the Hittite. I was like, whoa, he had his... Like, he's one of his best men to cover up his sin. And then I read in Matthew. I get to Matthew chapter 1. I read this. Solomon, the father of Boaz. I read this just recently. Whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You're sort of expecting a name there, whose mother was Bathsheba. No, no, no. In the genealogy of Jesus, it records who had been Uriah's wife. Why is that? Here in this genealogy, we get a glimpse that God, he remembers the injustice that was done. He remembers the wrong that was done to you. He remembers that wrong, and he records it. And he includes in his mercy, his profound mercy and magnanimous grace, he, he includes King David. In fact, it's the son of that affair and that moment who is a part of the lineage of Jesus. We see the character and nature of God in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And so often many of us are like, scroll. I don't know what this means. If we would read it slowly, we can connect with the author. Number two, we need to let God speak for himself. I can only get to know you by the words that you choose to disclose to me. 
The Bible is above all the self-revelation of a person, a person worth knowing, not only principles worth following. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. These are God's words. And he says, is not my word like a fire or like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces? He's comparing his word to the words of the false prophets. He's using imagery of fire, destructive, powerful, overwhelming. A hammer that smashes rock, wow, that's his image. In Romans eleven twenty two, Paul says to the Romans, he says, make sure that you consider, therefore, both the kindness of God and the severity of God. I would much rather just consider his kindness but then I would be creating an image of God in my own making and not allowing and relying on his self-revelation and letting him speak for himself. If we'll connect with the author, if we will let him speak for himself, and thirdly, if we will act on what we do understand. Soren Kierkegaard, he's a, he was a 19th century, um, 20th century in between, philosopher, theologian. And he said, you might come to me and say, the Bible is difficult. There's whole books that seem almost like riddles. He said, I would only accept that objection from somebody who had fully complied with all of the, the passages in the scripture that they did understand. Words like, do everything without grumbling or complaining. That's not difficult to understand. It is difficult to practice. Love my neighbor as myself. We spend our whole lives trying to live that out. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There's something we can practice. What about don't be afraid? When we practice these words, we start to understand their meaning. It's kind of like, you know, learning on the job, on the job training. That's what happens when we practice and put these words into practice. So just because you don't know why we shouldn't boil a young goat in its mother's milk doesn't mean you and I can't love our neighbor. Act on what we do understand. If we'll connect with the author, if we will let him speak for himself, if we will act on what we do understand. Fourthly and finally, I want to say to us, could we read this like a love letter? Kierkegaard, he also said, think about those cultural barriers or those questions about geography or history as necessary work to understand the message from somebody who loves you. Philip Yancey in his book, The Bible That Jesus Read, he says, imagine God goes into a counseling session and he says, he sits on the couch and the counselor says to him, tell me how you feel. And God just lets loose. That's the prophets. That's what happens in the prophets. 
God just tells us what matters to him. He tells us how grieved he is about our, how we wander from him and we don't pay attention and we don't listen. He tells us how much injustice matters to him. And when people are abused and neglected, he tells us there to look out for the stranger, the alien. He tells us. We see his heart and who he is. He says in Hosea, he says, you are ignoring me, Israel, Ephraim, but how could I give you up? I couldn't possibly let you go. So I won't let out my anger and discouragement on you because I am God and I'm not a man. I'll be here for you. What we're going to do this week, I'm going to send you on kind of a treasure hunt. I'm going to send you on these treasure hunts and every day, get your phone out, take a photo of this. Our weekly practice you're going to read the words of Jesus, and then you're going to see, wait, I'll smile. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Photobomb. <laughs> then you're going to see where those words of Jesus actually came from. There's five to 15 verses. It's going to take you maybe two to three minutes. Then you're going to ask the question, what do I notice here? What do I observe? And then ask yourself, how can I live these words out the way that Jesus did? Because in living them out, we start to understand their meaning. This is a letter from someone who loves you. I remember the moment when I noticed that passage that Lakendria read for us today, in Matthew 17. When Jesus climbs the mountain, his disciples, he brings them with him, and he says, he starts talking with Moses and Elijah. His face changes. And who is he talking with? I remember thinking, wait a second. Moses didn't enter the promised land. Moses' life kind of ended in pretty big disappointment, pretty major disappointment. And I thought, I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, you remembered Moses. And God remembers us. Did Moses make it into the promised land? You better believe he set foot there. Here he is on the mountain. He's not just in the promised land. He's toe-to-toe, -to -toe, face to face with the promise himself. He's talking with Jesus. Moses encountered Jesus. God didn't forget him and he remembers you. Would you close your eyes for a moment? What about you? What do you believe? Where's your faith today? I don't mean just faith, not only the statements of the creed that we read today, but also an inexplicable and a personal encounter, an event that transforms, that revolutionizes your sense of being and identity talking about an encounter with Jesus, maybe it's for the first time today or it's the first time in a while, would you say yes just under your breath right now? It may not be the only thing that you and God need to talk about, but it's the beginning of a conversation with the author. Because the meaning of life and of the Bible is found 
not just in understanding its message, but in encountering Jesus. Father, thank you for every person here. I pray that your word, I know that it doesn't return void, so we pray that the soil of our hearts would be receptive to hear and respond and do what it is you're asking us to do. I pray we'd say yes today in Jesus' name. Amen.